Let me add my welcome. My name is Callum. It's great to be with you here this morning, church family. I get the privilege of serving as one of the pastors in training here. Let's continue that prayer together. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you speak? Please speak to us, Lord. We are lost and in the dark if you do not speak. Thank you for your words. Thank you that it is clear that you give us your spirit to understand it, to apply it, to live it. Lord, may your word be sweet to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Adam holds his children's hand tightly as he makes his way to the school gate. It was Pride Affinity Day at the school where everyone was encouraged to wear bright clothing, to celebrate, to affirm, to celebrate together. It wasn't mandatory, of course, of all children to do this. But the family had agreed, based on God's teaching from the Bible on sexuality, that they could not support this in this way. But Adam knew this would have consequences. As he watches his kids make the long, lonely walk across the playground, he can feel the eyes of the other parents burning into the back of his head. Adam feels incredibly alone. Benjamin had been really encouraged with his gospel conversation with his Muslim colleague uh, on their lunch break yesterday. They had been discussing their different beliefs, different faith systems held by Christianity and Islam. And his colleague seemed really curious Benjamin had been able to share how how Jesus claimed to be God and had proven so by dying and rising from the dead. Benjamin invited him to church that Sunday. But today, Benjamin is called into his manager's office the following early in the morning and issued a formal warning following a complaint made of harassment. The workplace is no place to talk about personal beliefs and converting people. The team's attitude to Benjamin changes. He can sense it. Benjamin feels incredibly alone. Christy is in a coffee shop with friends and somehow the conversation seems to move on to how unforgivable some evil people really are. One friend asks Christy if if her God, knowing that she was a Christian, asks if her God sees Hitler as unforgivable. Immediately, Christy tenses up, but she plucks up the courage to say that Hitler will indeed be judged. But if Hitler had genuinely repented for his sin, had asked Jesus for forgiveness, God would forgive his sins, despite how despicable his life had been. Everyone looks away. The conversation moves on. 
What would they be saying behind her back later? Christy feels incredibly alone. We live in a culture that is incredibly hostile to God's teaching in the Bible and living out the Christian life faithfully. The world around us preaches powerful messages for all to conform or face rejection, isolation. What should Adam, Benjamin, Christy, what should they do? What does God have to say? Well, please turn back in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 12. Uh, this is on page 548 in the Red Church Bibles. Now, before we, we get back into our series in Exodus that Paul has been taking us through, we're resurrecting a series in the Psalms, working through the Psalms. Now, if you can't remember that, don't panic. We covered Psalm 11 about over seven years ago, so don't worry about that. We've got our work cut out for us. But just as wide the musical spectrum that you can listen to is today, the book of Psalms covers a whole range of human emotions, of human experiences, and how we relate to God. They're not all happy clappy, as we'll see today, but it is my prayer that we come away to today more hopeful in God's word and be able to live it out. So let's dive in. Now, the, the title of this psalm in italics in the church Bible, which is part of the original text, tells us that this is a psalm of David, the ancient and most uh, famous king of the ancient uh, nation of Israel. And you can read about David in other parts of the Old Testament. As a, a king, he, he was God's representative to the world for all people as part of the kingdom. But this song is not a solo effort. This psalm, the introduction tells us, is given as a corporate song to be sung together, sing with one voice. As God's people, we are invited to collectively identify with David's experience. And what is his experience? Well, have a look at verse 1. Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. David is isolated. He is exposed. And he is in need of help. Now, this is a key feature in this book of the Psalms, this first book, this first collection, where most seem to be written by David. David's struggles of conflict against the wicked to establish his throne that God has given him. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 ought to be a real benchmark for how we are to view this psalm. Psalm 1, the way of the wicked compared to the way of the righteous. Psalm 2, the, the kings and rulers of the world conspiring against the king that God appoints. And this conflict, Psalm 12, has seen the godly and the faithful vanish around him. Why? Well, verse 2 to 4 tells us. In Psalm 12, it is all 
to do with words. Words are everywhere. I don't know if you spotted that as we read through. Everyone lies. They flatter. They use deception. They boast. And this is everywhere and from everyone, David says. God's king has been isolated by the words of the human race. And rather than speaking the truth, he is surrounded by lies, empty words, vanity. They use smooth words, attractive talk to puff up and entice and give us sort of a false sense of security. But these positive, affirming words aren't spoken with good intentions. The aim is manipulation. It's exploitation. It's deception. The mouth, the the lips are covering up a corrupt heart that lies behind them, seeking destruction by word-injected poison. And this, these words are all coming from, David says, the neighbor. Everyone lies to his neighbor. Those familiar and perhaps even considered friends. And this was definitely, this was certainly David's own experience. He, you can read about in, in 1 Samuel, he had a, there was a paranoid King Saul who tried to kill him out of jealousy The king, David, had been faithfully trying to serve. Saul would would at various points be promising peace and, and saying sorry, asking for forgiveness, but then immediately pursuing his murderous plot once again, spreading lies about David, ostracizing him. And later, David's own son would, would try an assassination attempt to try and kill him. These powerful words work. That's why they boast, verse 4. What do they say? Have a look with me. By our tongues we will prevail. Our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? Now, these are words that are found in 21st century Edinburgh, aren't they? Self-declared, self-determined, self autonomy. What I say, I am. I rule. By our words, we determine what is reality and what is is right and wrong. We could talk about a whole host of issues. The right to change your gender or a whole host of other characteristics by self-identification. The right to abortion. The right to die of Um, assisted suicide, euthanasia, the right to self-determination as a country. I'm not picking a political side here. Remember carefully that the words of Brexit, to take back control, or of, of Scottish independence, of the campaign for freedom. Think of the words that are being used here. See how language is, is changed to suit our morality. We, we talk of terminating a pregnancy or conversion therapy. Divorce is talked of as uncoupling. We pursue 
justice and relentless judgment on all who all by um, and all are condemned by popular opinion. Now, I want to say, I want to stress at this point, if, if any of what I have just said has shocked you, let me, let me give you some assurances. In all of these cases that I've listed, in all of them, there is a genuine good desire at the heart of it, or at least at the start of it, to grant freedom for an oppressed group, a suffering group, of trying to alleviate them from their suffering, from the clutches of some sort of oppressor. Freedom is a good thing. It is something that we should all strive for. It is something that we want to see in our world. This is an attractive prospect. But when this desire is centered on human beings, human understanding, when we take confidence in our own words, the source is selfish pride. Who is Lord over us? They are smooth but empty words and ideals. And other groups become oppressed in their place. The truth is our tongues cannot be tamed. That's what James 3 tells us. Our tongues actually rule over us. If you're not sure if, if that's true or not, just think, have you ever said something that you didn't mean to say that you almost immediately regret? We don't have absolute control. It is not ultimately free. We are slaves to our words. We are slaves to the heart of deception that lies behind it. And in our quest for self-autonomy and self-determination, it is the powerful that defines the value of the weak, whether the unborn or the old and infirm. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, Romans 1 tells us. We worship and serve created things, our words, rather than the Creator. God is marginalized, isolated, and so are the people who follow him, like David. What are God's people, isolated by the words of prevailing culture, what are they to do? They are to pray as David prays. Help me, Lord. Save me. May all flattering and lying lips be silenced, their prideful power removed. The culture, as we, as we witness it, seems to be vast and powerful. We need to pray for God's rescuing help. We're to direct our words to Him instead. And at that point, there is a turning point. There is a turning point in the psalm at verse 5. And what a turning point. After all those speaking lies and flattery and deceit and boasting, for the first time in the book of Psalms so far as they've been collated, the Lord speaks. The Lord replies. For this song, this is where the bass would drop Read with me in verse 5. 
Because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. Notice first that God has heard the groans, the cries of his oppressed people. Now, this is massively reassuring, isn't it? The God of the universe hears the weak whimper of tiny David, who is all alone, who has been ostracized. If you are here this morning and you are, you are holding back, offering up prayers to God, doubting that God will hear you, let this verse comfort you that the Almighty God sees and hears all. And He knows the affliction that these marginalized and maligned people are facing. It hasn't gone unnoticed. And not only does he hear, but out of his loving care, he is willing to act. He will arise from his throne, the throne of true authority, to protect and save his people. But notice the tenses that he uses here in verse 5. I will arise. I will protect. He responds by speaking. And he is speaking of a future promise. This hasn't come to pass yet. He is making a covenant with his people, committing himself to their protection, to their salvation. No action as such, just words of promise here. And David can't help but delight in verse 6 over these words that God has uttered. These words are truly flawless and pure. They are refined. They need to come up with a new gold carrot category in order to value these words properly. And compared to the, the self-serving, the, the deceitful and empty words we read about earlier, there is no flaw to be found in God's words. David can say this for two reasons. First of all, these words are flawless because they belong to and come from a flawless God. Think about it. If there was a flaw to be found in God's words, if we were to, to pick and choose parts of God's words, that would mean that there is some sort of impurity or inconsistency with God himself. He would cease to be God if that was the case. If we couldn't trust or rely on, on just even just one aspect of God's words, then the whole Bible collapses. None of it could be reliable. If God starts lying or changing his mind, how could we say anything about him with any sort of certainty? No. God's word is pure as God himself is pure. And secondly, David can say God's words are flawless because of his own experience of God's promises to him as his anointed king. David can testify from his life that God has never failed him, never gone back on his word for him or for Israel. This is why he uses the terms of a, a refiner's fire in verse 6, of a crucible, a furnace. God's promises have come up against some severe testing, some real heat, promising descendant, 
to an old and barren couple, promising a land to a nation of slaves. God's word has faced some extreme heat, including the lies mentioned earlier in this psalm. And it has proven itself to be utterly pure and utterly reliable. In a culture where we are offered promise after promise of freedom, of chasing after different ways, different ideologies, to actually have a source, one source, that can be classed as flawless, this is a game changer. Freedom and rescue are, are so highly sought after by everyone. A, a commodity that is, is so priceless. Well, it shows the true value of God's words. This is finer than silver purified, more precious than gold refined by the perfect number of times. Well, we need to ask ourselves then, do we treasure God's word this highly? Do we sing with delight over its purity and its trustworthiness? Because if we truly believe that God's word is flawless, we rightly need to treat it as the supreme authority over our lives, our whole lives. The truth of God's word is the ultimate truth under which all other claims that culture makes, both us and our world around us, need to be tested and assessed against. This isn't a throwaway comment. Remember that the words of the wicked that run through every human heart are deceptive and flattering and come from a neighbor, a familiar source. I think often that the more familiar someone or something is to us, the more we are likely to let our guard down. Now, don't let the word pastor or even pastor in training make you sit there comfortably. Please assess everything that I say against the whole counsel of God's word that is in front of you. But also do not think that, that you or I are immune to the culture that we live in. We are all products of, our, um, of it, and our thinking and our behavior always needs to be redeemed and refined by God's Word. Do we treasure God's design for human identity as we were thinking about last Sunday from Genesis 1? Do we treasure God's determination for what is sin and what is not? Only when we, we love the Word's intricate detail and promises that are listed through it, can we see the worthlessness of the defiant culture around us? Don't allow trusted sources or familiar names, whether they are individuals or organizations, trump the authority and value of God's Word. God intervening by His Word has made all the difference to David in the concluding verses of this psalm. He prays with assurance, you, lords, will keep the needy safe and, and will protect us forever from the wicked who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. This maybe isn't the happy ending that we were expecting from this psalm. 
I don't know about you, but I would have thought that God would have answered David's prayers by silencing the lies and the lips around him. But here they are, still strutting confidently, freely, in pride. From the start to the end of this psalm, nothing has changed. Yet there has been a change. God has spoken, and that's all the reassurance that David needs. He repeats back to God what God has said to him, what God has promised. He trusts it for himself, not removed from the oppression, but equipped for it. God protects by his words. Yet was he protected forever? David is is upheld here as a faithful one, and yet he still went to his grave. Had God actually failed in his promises? Well, the word of God himself would later come. Jesus Christ, to fulfill all of God's promises. Christ would do as God's chosen king. He would come for the poor and the needy. In his life, he spoke about the kingdom of God. He rebuked the proud. He called out their smooth hypocrisy, silenced the demons. But he himself was called demon-possessed, a blasphemer. He was maligned, and at the end, even his loyal and faithful friends vanished and disappeared. At his trial, he was accused with evidence based on lies. He went to the cross, oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth as Isaiah prophesied. God promised it. No deceit was found in his mouth. Right to the end, the only one in the human race that remains pure and blameless. To then speak, at that point, precious words for our souls. It is finished. He took the punishment for wicked sinners that would trust in his words. He won salvation for the poor and the needy who desperately needed it. He silenced the accuser and robbed him of the power to speak condemningly of those protected by his perfect righteousness forever. If you, like David, are trusting in God's words this morning, trusting in God's Messiah, you too can join in with David's song, you, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked. That's what we're going to do later on in our service. As we share the communion meal together, we reflect on this sacrificial lamb who had no deceit in his mouth. If this is not the case for you this morning, but the truth of the culture around us has, has you have had your eyes open to it, you see the falsehood of it, the deceptions of it, You can pray as the start of this psalm suggests, help, Lord, save me, Lord. Trust in God's precious and pure promises. Ask God to forgive you. 
by the blameless sacrifice of Christ for your pride, for your defiance. This is all you need for assurance of God's protection forever. But remember, friends, everyone here, we, like David, now live in a time of now and not yet of God's good and precious promises. One day, God will come again. Jesus will return to silence the wicked and the proud once and for all. We are not there yet. Jesus has not yet returned. But until then, what should Adam at the school gate, what should Benjamin in the workplace, what should Christy with her friends, what should they do? Well, 1 Peter 2 picks up this theme, this promise of Isaiah 53. It's on screen. Christ was given to us as an example to have no deceit in our mouths. Despite insults hurled at him, he entrusted to himself to him who judges justly. We do the same. Therefore, we do, as Peter tells us to do earlier in this chapter, in chapter 2, verse 12, live such godly lives among, you, among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That their words might be transformed through the words that you speak to them, through your conduct. This is not about us being silent of keeping our head down, but we uphold God's good name, God's good honor. We pray out loud, we speak as David does towards the end of our psalm. Let's pray. Lord, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We don't deserve it. You had no obligation to speak, and yet you have made yourself known. Lord, would this be a comfort to us if we are feeling isolated? Would this be a challenge to us that we might treasure your word more? And would this give us confidence that you will fulfill all of your good and precious promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I realize as part of this sermon, we have touched on a number of topics of conversation. If you have been challenged or struck by anything, hurt by anything that has been said today, please come and speak to me afterwards or speak to someone that you've come with and we can reflect on God's word together. But we are gonna sing again before communion and we share the communion meal. We're going to sing again together, Behold Our God.